It wasn't until the late 19th century that we discovered that washing hands helped reduce the spread of germs and improve health outcomes. And it was the middle of the 20th century when antibiotics began to be used regularly and intentionally to kill harmful bacteria. Here in the 21st century, the information age is driving a similar sea change in the delivery of care. But no matter what changes we see in the advance of digital health or pharmaceutical product development, there's no question that hospital medicine, the place where that care is delivered, is the epicenter of those changes wrought by the information age. Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast where we talk about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest this week is Dr. William Rice, the Senior Vice President of Clinical Innovation for St. David's Healthcare. In this role, Dr. Rice supports a portfolio of informatics initiatives focused on usability, variation, analytics, and modeling, and works to deploy a formalized innovation infrastructure across the St. David's healthcare system. Prior to joining St. David's Healthcare, Dr. Rice served as Chief Medical Officer of White Glove House Call Health, a company he co-founded. In addition to his 14 years of experience in clinical emergency medicine, Dr. Rice has participated in the formation and initial work of a number of early-stage healthcare companies. Dr. Rice holds a patent for a system and method to optimize the care of chronic disease patients. He's the author of a book entitled American Healthcare 2008, Opportunities for Disruptive Improvement. In 2013, Dr. Rice was appointed by Governor Perry to the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas, where he serves as a member of the Oversight Committee. In short, there's nobody better to walk us through how hospital medicine is taking advantage of the opportunities available to us in the information age. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Rice just as much as I did. Bill, thank you so much for being with us on Data Point today. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Since coming to St. David's as, as head of clinical innovations, can you tell us a little bit about some of your priorities? What are some of the things that happen uh, you know, in that epicenter of the health ecosystem, as you described the, the hospital? At, the, at its core, what I work on is four things, basically. Quality, safety, efficiency, and, and experience. All of those are sort of, everybody has the, you know, the triple aim and the three legs mm. of the stool, or the four legs of the stool, <laughs> the four wheels on the tire, whatever it all is. To me, that's kind of the core of, of what we work on. It and um, you know, as you think about hospital medicine, there's just lots of areas of of of, of work that um, you know that are empowered by kind of the um, the digitalization of so much of what's happening in healthcare. So let me see if I can unpack that a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about um, hospital medicine. What what does that actually mean to you? It seems like it could mean a lot of different things. Right. Well, you know, hospital has changed. Hospital medicine has changed in that. You know, what was formerly just hospital is now hospital more or less plus 90 days. It's conceptually how we think about it, mm-hmm. or 90 days or 30 days. I mean, readmission penalties and bundles um, have us thinking differently about, you know, hospital medicine per se. And we certainly now have a bigger view of it. That's one thing. Um, it's amazing that, you know, you have best practices which are, you know, which describe, um, you know, sets of processes and, and, and the things you do to... Um, you know, to optimize the outcome of some some thing in clinical medicine, basically, and and then what you learn is that um, when you peel the onion back further and further deeper into the data, you can ask more and more questions about you know the elements that drive the outcome that you could ever see before. So let me see if I can give an example. Yeah. Um, let's talk about C diff. C diff is a common um, infection in hospitals. Not common, but I'm saying it's a commonly infection of common concern across the Absolutely. U.S. C. diff infection rates are um, one of the quality metrics we have. 
And um, it's well known that you, you know, how do you minimize C. diff? You try to avoid broad-spectrum antibiotics. You have a program which tries to make sure you clean rooms well. You, um, you know, you, um, um, you may screen high-risk patients. You know there's a carrier rate. There's a numbers of things that are involved in, in that. And so you work to um, try to um, drive a program in a hospital or a facility that meets all those you know, elements and checks those boxes mm. and makes sure you do that well. And probably what, we, what we've learned is that the very best of the very best go deeper than that because, that, you know, that's, that gets you so far. But, okay. you know, if you're in the top decile performance for C. diff, you have zero infections. You don't have less or few. You have mint zero, you know. So how do you get to that? And so you peel back the onion more deeper. And, and the example I would use, the specific example is, is asking questions like, well, who's ordering C. diff? And do we always order it perfectly? And, and what are the indications for a C. diff test? And, and do we have false positives? And how does our carrier rate mm. compare with our lab outcome positivity rate? And, and, and one of the things we've bumped into is the, the question of frequency of ordering the C. diff test. So again, I'm sorry I'm quite so you know, deep into the weeds and all this, but believe it or not, um, you know, that's an important place you've got to go for C. diff. So in this example or discussion, you know, you can look at um, physicians across your whole hospital, only look at physicians who've seen, let's say, 200 patients or more in the last 180 days. And you can ask the question, what percentage of those patients, I mean, um, you know, maybe excluding OB or something, excluding, you know, small pediatrics or whatever. But sure. look across, you know, adult medicine, what percentage of patients, and you know, by doctor, what percentage of patients get a C. diff test? Mm-hmm. And what you'll find out is that the, the variation in C. diff testing can be a 10x, right? Wow. For, for whatever reason, some people order it more, some people order it less. Maybe that you're a GI doctor, an infectious disease doctor, and we expect that you would order it more. So, you know, you've got to look into your data. But Nonetheless, if you don't peel back the onion that far and look sort of deep into that realm, then you miss the opportunity to kind of help a physician or physicians sort of understand whether they tend to be, to be a little more frequent in their ordering and maybe less frequent. And, and again, you've got the noise of carriers and false positives. And so that's mm-hmm. why it's especially important to make sure you're only testing people with significant symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a little bit in the weeds, but that's just an example of, um, you know, kind of... Um, a bit of a, a value proposition for a clinical problem, which is a meaningful and, and important one. And, and um, you know, there's hundreds basically yeah. like that. You know, we're trying to minimize readmissions, as is everybody. We have mm-hmm. readmission penalties for Medicare patients, certain Medicare fee-for-service patients. That's the readmission reduction program. Um, you know, um, we try to minimize readmissions in hospital medicine by doing a bunch of things, which everybody in the whole world knows what those are. You want to do... Um, um, Patients need to, you know, have a good follow-up plan with a primary, with a mm-hmm. physician, with a specialist or primary care physician. They need to know what their meds are and understand what their meds are. They need to be able to get their meds. They need to be able to get home or where to whatever that next location is for the discharge, after discharge. Yep. And the whole, it's, it's kind of like 10 or so, you know, classically defined things that need to happen. And every hospital tries to do that really, really well. And we, and whatever that turns into... It's, it's just, it's never perfect. And so patients do end up coming back to the emergency room thereafter. And sometimes they get readmitted for different things. And, and so, um, and what we studied is when we went um, deep into this conversation is that um, probably about one in five patients that come back, I'm talking about Medicare fee-for-service, yep. we're just addressing the readmission program yeah. and, and trying to think about that. About one in five patients come back and they have a length of stay of less than two days. Okay. So all of a sudden when, you're, when you study that and you kind of, you know, go deeper and, 
into that whole question, you realize that some patients that come back to the emergency room, and, and we do have patients that come back to the emergency room, and we check them out and do what we need to do and do an evaluation and then and help them, and, and then um, and they can go home or to mm-hmm. home health or back to a skilled nursing or whatever. But, but the point is that there is a, a group of people that um, about 20% of all, the, all those that do come back in Probably have um, if we could care if we could work more dynamically to care coordinate what happens to those folks. I mean, again, um, I'm not talking about the people that come back who you know just need a little something and then they can be discharged home. That's not sure. But the ones that have a little more problem, a little more complexity, and we need you know some six hour or twelve hour thing, um, what we'd call observation maybe or um, whatnot. We're refining sort of the recognition of that, and it turns out we think that's a, an opportunity to help people, you know, not have to come back and get readmitted uh, more than uh, more effectively than what we have done historically. And, and again, you know, we want people who don't really need to be in the hospital not to have to come to the hospital sure. because at the end of the day, you, your parents, your children, you, you know, you don't want to be in the hospital unless you have to be. If you have to be, that's fine and fantastic. We're going to take care of you as best we always can. But on the other hand, um, if we don't really, if you don't really need to be there, we want to hold that bed for somebody that needs it, you know, a little worse, whatever. So, so we're working very actively to sort of, sort of um, recognize those patients. And again, now you've got a little chance for a little artificial intelligence to build a yeah. predictor that says, okay, let's look at, you know, a thousand patients or two or five thousand patients that came back to an emergency room over the last three or four years, and the ones that only stayed two days. What's common about them? Mm-hmm. They have fewer comorbidities. They may be a little younger. They may have this or that or the other or a combination of this and that and the other. And so a little machine learning, in that case, a very specific case, that probably helps us predict who more more precisely who needs or doesn't need to be in. And so that's the magic of, of quote-unquote machine learning and AI. And it's much more that than I'm going to, you know tell you at some moment in your life on, you know, at 9.32 on <laughs> February 17th, you know, you're going to sprain your ankle. Right. AI is not going to do that. That's and the so equivalent that's, of the flying car. That's that the flying example. car, exactly. Yeah. So that brings it back to reality. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with Dr. Bill Rice. Stick around for the Data Point podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter. Welcome back to Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. We're here talking to Dr. Bill Rice, who is the head of clinical innovation at St. David's. And um, Bill, you were talking to us a little bit about what led into this role. Can you give us a sense of, as a clinical innovations leader in a major health system, what does that look like? How do you model that uh, in today's hospital medicine? What does that look like to you? It almost um, makes me think about sort of how I came to this, this hospital side mm-hmm. anyway. And, and Obviously, my clinical background was emergency medicine for many years, and we were on the business side. Actually, we built a company and took it public, of all things. So, yep. so, um, and then after that, I spent some decade or so in the 
in the VC world and, and you know, sort of lived and breathed early stage um, innovation, whatnot. And the other end of the spectrum really is, is, is um, you know, hospital medicine, large institutions. So mm-hmm. it's a fair question to say kind of like how and why did that happen? And I guess what I'd say is that, you know, I've been with St. David's and HCA eight years. And, you know, in that time frame, I was... Um, Sort of thinking about this this convergence of data, which was was you know which has been pouring forth as we all have watched it come come these last decade, and um, you know I was having this vision of a NASA mission control about where mm-hmm. the hospital system and and you know hospitals are the most expensive I'll say the most complex and I don't want to say dangerous but there are places where a lot of intense complexity can go on yeah. almost more so than than any place else I can think of in in, in society right you've got um, you know, um, an organization in our case of St. David's of 10,000 people, and you're trying to do a very specific thing, which is take excellent world-class care of patients every day in a multitude of things from a, a ni- delivery of a NICU baby to, you know, um, grandma or grandpa who's in their 90s or 100 or whatever they might be. Yeah. Big, huge spectrum. And so, um, so I, I, you know, you kind of envision that the way this all plays out is not like um, flying cars so much as it is something that turns in probably to a command center like a mission control where, you know, you're really in a new way pulling in data that's that's been heretofore largely in the hands of an individual mm. in a moment in time. And you have the ability to sort of um, essentially integrate that massively so that you know, groups of people can be aware of um, of information, and you can sort of reconfigure how programs and processes and whatnot happen for the benefit of the patients, and, and you know, as they traverse through, you know, a stay. And so, that's what's exciting and interesting about you know hospital medicine now. And again, you know, what I just described is a little bit of a flying car, but we're, you know, we're going to get there with command centers and hospitals that you know you can imagine. Um, you know, certainly with our association with HCA, we've thought, you know, someone's going to come to the hospital right now at this moment and this day. And it may be, again, I'm just saying this just for no particular reason, you know, a, a, um, a 75-year-old female with, with heart failure and something else and something else mm-hmm. and something else. Well, I'm going to go peer into the last 20,000 patients that look the most like that patient yes. into the HCA data set. And say the patients that most like her, what do we do that, that provided the very best outcome? Yep. And this is really at our fingertips now in the next year or so to really get that organized. But that's coming, and that's that's not a flying car. So that was the opportunity I saw is is that kind of stuff. And again, this is not you know new kinds of genomics or new kinds of proteomics or new kinds of anything. It's just organizing what we already have in a better way to flow. So absolutely, so, and being um, able to to put that in the hands of the clinicians who are ultimately going to be making right. decisions or the groups and, of just Decisions yeah, that can make yes. the group decision as opposed to uh, the doctor gets a lab report at a certain time at a certain date. I want to send that lab report to the the team of people that can make the best group decision and, yeah. and all that. So so that's part of it. So now this all you know comes out of um, you know of this innovation background. So I was mm-hmm. going to share that for a second just to think about you know with my innovation title, which I'm proud and happy to have. Um, I see a lot of people, a lot of people knock on the door, let's say, and want to bring some idea. And, and so that's been an interesting journey to, to sort of learn more about. I mean, it, you know, you learn this in the, um, you know, in startups and in early stage companies, what is the value proposition? Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day of, of any startup, I mean, 
if it's a startup company and you're trying to like be successful, that has to include in, in the startup context sales of something, a value proposition that's inarguable to somebody. And what's interesting in healthcare, again, everybody's many people are interested in healthcare. There's lots of healthcare innovation. Healthcare innovators often don't understand who the customer is. So I have lots of people that come and want to sell me something and they don't really understand the customer. And so I, I break it down into kind of the idea that, you know, uh, a lot of times things that we can do benefit different groups. And so the, to get there, let me just do it this way. When I buy a book on Amazon, I, you know, I make a purchase and I give them my credit card and there's a transaction and then I get my book. And, and I get the book delivered by UPS mm-hmm. or somebody. Pretty straightforward. And so it's a very straightforward value proposition, um, me to, to Amazon or whoever, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In healthcare, when I do a transaction, quote unquote, a transaction, I've got a financial beneficiary. I probably have a clinical beneficiary. Now, let's go back. The financial beneficiary is probably the payer if I do something great and maybe it's efficient or better mm-hmm. than what was out there before. And that's, that's our goal these days is quality, safety, efficiency, and patient experience being wonderful, et cetera. Um, so one val- part of the value proposition may go to one thing, like the payer. Sure. Another part of the value proposition, which might be the clinical outcome, goes to, the, of course, the patient, sure. patient's family, and their whatever. Family, yeah. Another part might be the operational piece about you know, what's the cost or the effort to do, how mm. complex to do it on the operational side. So those are just the three things that come to mind. But the point is, is that all of those pieces have, have uh, are part of the overall value proposition. And if you try to come and bring an innovation into healthcare and those are not aligned in, in the way, if you don't have a deep understanding of how those align, mm-hmm. then you may try to sell the wrong thing to the wrong customer. And I've had that happen a lot, you know. Yep. And so so I just make that observation as, as an observation. Um, when you think about that role, it seems like it could cover everything, right? It, this is a, an enormous task how do you break it down? Are there categories that you tend to focus on uh, as you're as you're thinking about your role supporting those different customers? Yeah. So um, great question. You know, again, there's this this golden era right now in this um, you know this this informatics era that we're in, and um, in the hospital realm, we think of it at least um, in in terms of a few things. But I'll think of just operationally. Um, I mean, certainly there's clinical quality. And there's, um, I mean, clinical quality and safety is always first. A, you know, one, you know, yeah. of importance number one, number one, number one, et cetera. But, you know, operationally that we, we work on things like throughput. And the question is, is how do you use digital information to work on efficient throughput through the hospital? Movement, unexpected, you know, recognition of unexpected things. I guess these are classes of, 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 yeah. of, 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 of informatics tools. There could be timers. There are care coordination kind of, um, you know, uh, tools um, that drive things like group awareness. And so um, we think that's an interesting kind of um, way to think about um, how to organize or what we organize in hospital medicine to try to optimize what's going on. So, again, you know, um, right now it's in January. It happens to be in January. Thankfully, it's a relatively light flu season. Famous last words, as long as you don't have the flu <laughs> exactly. right now. But um, it is a lighter season than last year. But, you know, hospitals are, are working on throughput. And the question is, what can you, how can you use informatics in a way to drive optimization of your throughput and, mm. and, and recognition of who is, again, safe and who is less safe and who is actually changing in a negative way or changing in a positive way in your hospital right now, kind of back to that command center system. Yeah. And, and we're building tools literally so that you can watch um, 
these kinds of evolutions in real time. And we can imagine, and really we're, we're building this right now. For instance, let's just talk about case management. Case management sure. is more sort of you know, focused on you know, people that are in the hospital but now need to sort of be managed and thought about as they anticipate a transition to yeah. a, a post-discharge location. It could be home, could be home health, could be skilled nursing and all that. So you know, we kind of envision a, com- a case management command system command center, really, Mm -hmm. which would be a room where maybe a facility, a hospital case manager would have, you know, one display, which is looking at the emergency room and noticing, you know, what the the movement of the emergency room is now. And for instance, how many patients in the emergency room right now were discharged within the last 30 days? Because I want to be particularly careful about those people who are now signaling by their presence in the emergency Mm -hmm. room back that, that, you know, that they're in a different place than they wanted or expected to be or that we wanted or expected them to be. So, So that's one piece. You might a case manager might have a um, a, um, um, a another screen that shows all the patients with a pending discharge order. All the patients who who by maybe some AI algorithm, machine learning algorithm, mm-hmm. we predict you know would usually go home today given their age and their diagnosis and their co-diagnosis and all that. You might also have part of that screen to say who actually has a discharge order written. And then what we've built is another thing that says what are the barriers to discharge. So. Doctor, you know, Doctor Jones has said Mrs. Smith is ready to go home. He or she's written a discharge order, but the patient can't quite go home yet because we're waiting on one of the following. You know, um, durable medical equipment, DME, yeah. a ride. Um, you know, the lab result to come back for that last thing we're just double checking for waiting on the cardiologist to come by. So we built a little system where that where the um, the care team can check off which of those things are are the barriers. So that whoever's watching and coordinating case management, and that could be, again, the case management captain. It could be the CMO of the hospital. It could be the CEO of the hospital who's interested in how patient flow is going. Sure. And then he, might, he, might, he or she might you know, sort on all the patients waiting on a physician to drop by, the consulting physician to drop by to give the final okay mm-hmm. before a patient goes home. And quite frankly, they could, you could pick up the phone and call the, you know, a physician and say, hey, um, are you tied up in surgery? They're waiting on you for these four patients and these three rooms, four rooms, whatever, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So you can imagine operational efficiency that just sort of, you know, happens by by bringing up what what was formerly, um, you know, a case manager on the floor and a nurse who said, well, Dr. Steve, you know, wrote an order for discharge for Mrs., you know, whatever, mm-hmm. and we're waiting on, you know, the surgeon to come by, and it's, you know, and then they're off to the next patient. Right. So, you know, you, you enable a swarm of people to be aware of the of what the operational issues are as opposed to the individual. So I, that's an example of what we're trying to do in 100 different areas. No, and that completely makes sense. To be honest with you, it's one of those things that it, it feels like nurses have always coordinated those things in their heads. Uh, no, that's right. But it's a way of that's taking right. it out of the nurse's head and actually being able to look at it through, across the institution. And, and I mean, you mentioned this before, that's kind of the... Um, you know, the same story, different chapter on things like quality management and section meetings. And, yeah. you know, we look at data on a monthly basis, that's fine. If I can pull in quality kind of drivers, and we call it clinical decision support, right into the real time, mm-hmm. then then that's when it's most meaningful. I mean, uh, you know, um, physicians studying perfection or near perfection or non-perfection in outcomes from a, th- a month ago or a quarter ago is not nearly as effective, obviously, as something that just, you know, is a little signal that they get right in real time that says this patient has this, you know, dot, 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 or, or, or your rate of ordering this is this compared to average or whatever it would be. Um, again, um, bringing stuff into real time is kind of our theme, I guess. Absolutely. You know? And it, it makes complete sense. I know... Um 
one of the areas where you've spent a lot of time and energy over the years is on cancer, cancer research, and where we're heading with regard to the treatment of cancer. Could you tell us a little bit about some of your some of the points of emphasis that you're focused on relative to to cancer today? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm an emergency room emergency physician by training, so I am not an oncologic specialist. Right. Obviously, having said that, I um, was asked to join the board of CEPRIT um, actually a little over five years ago. So CEPRIT is the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas, mm-hmm. and that's a very interesting organization. Um, it was funded by by a um, bond mechanism, I guess that's not important, 10 years ago or so, or just coming up on 10 years. And basically what it does is it puts $300 million a year in Texas into cancer research. And Mm -hmm. that's interesting because essentially that more than doubles um, the cancer research that is otherwise funded by the National Cancer Institute. So so hover back up. Cancer National Cancer Institute is the largest cancer research funding organization in the country, probably mm-hmm. the world, about, I've forgotten exactly, but five and a half, maybe six billion dollars by now. Yeah. They, they fund cancer research across the United States. Um, Texas gets a portion of that, which is um, somewhat um, proportional to the number of um, cancer researchers in, in the state. And, mm-hmm. and um, that number is, is um, something in the 210 or $220 million a year um, research, funded okay. research to academic institutions. And, and the secret funding essentially more than doubles that. So that's interesting. And again, we're talking about academic research. We're talking about, you know, Texas um, the Simmons Cancer Institute at Southwestern, the um, MD Anderson, of course. The Baylor um, 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 Medical Center, you know, Cancer Institute in um, in Houston, other cancer research that goes on in Lubbock or Galveston or San Antonio. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, we have three um, comprehensive cancer research centers in Texas, and and cancer research going on in ac- all the academic institutions. Anyway, long story short, I got to be I got asked to be on the board of that, and so I've been on that board for some years. And you know, the principal question you carry uh, um, is. What can what is it that CEPRIT can do to accelerate progress in cancer research? The mission of 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 CEPRIT is to um, you know decrease the suffering um, from cancer for uh, for the citizens of Texas, yeah. and also to you know support the um, you know the the growth and the and the strength of the bioscience, um, the cancer oncology at least bioscience um, industry and and um, and research in Texas, et cetera. So. Um, so we've thought a lot about how you explore that, and what I would share and, 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 um, is, is the, the following. It, it is an informatics game, and um, there's something called multi-scale modeling, which I just want to touch on for yeah, a second. So yeah. this, is, this is how it plays. Um, you know, we largely think about, in any context, in, in biology and whatnot, we think about genes. Genes control everything. If you just knew the genomics of a problem, you kind of would solve the problem. And it's actually, it's kind of like, um, it's not that simple. And so it turns out that um, genes do, um, of course, control. Gene expression is what controls protein production. So gene sequence is important. And gene, you know, mutations can drive, you know, things that turn into cancer. And some cancers, that's all it is. And, I mean, yeah. not, 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 not to say it's all it is, but the point is, is that that's the fault. There's something called epigenetics, which is essentially the, the, um, the idea that some things which are not genes, but some things that you either, you can, can you know, it's diet, toxins, your rest, your hormones, your this and that and the other. Mm-hmm. Some things can affect the way cancer genes express, or the way genes express themselves, but they aren't actually genetic changes. So you and I could have our, gen- our genes sequenced and they could be exactly the same, but yet your epigenetic or my epigenetic character, because I did this or that and the other, means that my gene for X, Y, or Z isn't going to express the same as yours, 
This has been uh, tremendous, giving us a view of uh, the pragmatic methods that you're using to uh, improve hospital medicine today, but also a view to the future about where we're heading and, man, some of the really exciting things happening in oncology today. Thank you so much, Dr. Rice. I really appreciate you uh, being a guest on the show. Thank you, Greg. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.